Do you ever have these moments where you, uh, you think back and go, man, if I had made one decision differently, my life would be completely different? You ever have that? I don't think it's bad. Like, do you ever think, if I would have stopped and picked up a lottery ticket, those were my numbers. And I would have won the 60-something million dollars, and I could have given it all away, right? Do you ever think about this? Or I would have gone to work the next morning instead? Am I the only one that thinks like this? How your life would be different with one decision? No? Thank you, Liz. You and I. But there's this thing. I, in high school, I was recruited to go to the Air Force Academy to play football, or I could have gone to San Diego and played soccer. So it's either Colorado, landlocked, San Diego, coastal. I went and played soccer. Uh, and, and so that was my, and I'm happy I did. I had a great time and we played and it was fun. I surfed a lot. Surfing always wins. And then, but now I sit in my backyard and we live in the flight pattern for the big jets to come in. And I have my little app that tells me where this plane is coming from and how high and how fast. And then I wonder, had I gone to the... I wonder if it's going to run out of gas, first of all, because it's right over my house. And then I think, if... That would have been... Yeah, I did that to Carrie. I said, Carrie, I hope this plane doesn't run out of gas. And she looks at me and goes, now I have to worry about that? (laughs) But... So I'm sitting there wondering, had I gone to the academy, would I be flying jets? There's no way this fits into a fighter plane. And so would I, be, would I be in these things, or what would I have done had I gone that way? It's a normal thing to think about. At least I think so. And so I wonder also, one of the things I wonder, had things been different, for instance, if things were different back in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned, how would things have been different? Which animals would still be talking today? Would you have a conversation with your dog about what? Would your dog spill the beans on you of everything that you did? Imagine if your your pet could talk. What What would be different? Imagine our relationships had Adam and Eve not sinned. Would they have been different? Or they would have. This contention that we feel with each other stems from Genesis 3 when the fall happened, when sin entered the world. Our lives before the fall, as we read in Genesis 1 and 2, are vastly different than our lives after the fall. However, since the fall, since Genesis 3, God has been in the process of mending our relationships both with him and with others. And he's been trying to bring this, and the culmination of this is to bring our relationships under the headship of Christ. Today, we've got a lot of scripture to cover. This is the second to last week in Ephesians. We've gone from one to here, and we have a lot of information to get through it. We're going to go and start all the way back in Genesis, because everything starts in Genesis, and then we will read book by book, and we'll be done by 11. How's that? (laughs) There's two words that will make you feel sorry for me today that we're going to come across. It's the word wives, and it's the word submit. And they're both in the same sentence. Don't you want to trade places today? No? Okay. Well, you don't want to be me. But we'll try and figure this out. It doesn't say what we think it says. We'll just let each other off the hook there. It's not saying what we think it's saying. It's going a lot deeper than what our cultural does. So today we're going to look at a few things that will help us bring light to this passage and it'll help us bring light to our relationships. We're going to look at a context of this verse. We're going to look at the definition of, of this word. And we're going to look about healing relationships. Are you with me?
Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather. We thank you that uh, we can be here. And Lord, uh, we thank you that uh, this week we get a little break. And so Lord, would, would we be mindful of your spirit and what your spirit is teaching us today? Uh, would you be the teacher? Would you be the guide as we continue in our study? In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be talking a lot about wives and husbands, but one of the first things to address here is that most of us, some of us, aren't married. And that's okay. Uh, there's two things we ought to know when we look at this. Singleness isn't a bad thing. And it, it's, it's not. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians goes out of his way to say, uh, if you don't need to be married, marriage is trouble. And most of the people who are married in this room would agree, go, yep, it sure is. If you're honest, it's trouble. Those same honest people who said that marriage can sometimes be trouble would admit that oftentimes we wish we were single too. So if you're single, I want to recognize this. And there are some undercurrents in our church uh, that we have this thing that when we meet single people, the first thing we want to do is set them up. Which is totally wrong. Which some, some, some's okay. Yeah, okay. But there's two things here. When we say that, <laughs> some people want to be set up, and that's fine. <laughs> but when our first thing is to set somebody up, I think we, we do this thing culturally where we set them up in, in two ways for failure. One, we say that they're not complete without a spouse or family. And then the other is, is we say that, that God wants that they're not where they're supposed to be with God. There's some things here. So before we get going, God has you right where he wants you. Single or married, right where you're at, you are fine. Uh, even though we'll talk, to this, we'll talk about marriage today and our relationships, there's a lot to say here about our relationships with our friends, about our relationships with our coworkers, about relationships with everybody. So if you're single, you're, you're complete just as you are. God has you right where you are. He wants to use you as you are. For everybody... This has more to do with our relationships than, mo than it does having to do with our marriage, okay? So we're going to go back to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen if you didn't bring your Bibles. Genesis starts in page one. Uh, we will go to page one of the story. Genesis 1, 27, it says this, So God created mankind, or humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Grammatically, what the writer is saying here is that both male and female are needed to reflect the image of God. Not just man, not just the male uh, reflects the image of God. The female is needed to reflect the image of God. Both together. From the start, the Bible tells us this. It starts with a clear, unmistakable declaration that the equality of man and women are there. And they're both needed to reflect God's image. Turn your page over one to Genesis 2.18. In Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for that man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And if you are a guy, we look at this and go, It isn't good for us to be alone, if you're honest. We can get into a lot of trouble. There's a problem here, though. When we translate this word helper... Uh, we think of it as someone to come and aid, but this word helper is an extremely strong Hebrew word. It's the word is there, which, which is used in Psalms of God rescuing uh, somebody. And so what it's saying is that guy needs some rescuing. 
He's into trouble all by himself. He needs to be rescued from his own devices. David uses this, and it's never used in a way of subordinate. It's never used in a way of hierarchy. It's always of being rescued from certain death. In Psalm 33, David cries out, We wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help, is there, and our shield. Same word, helper. My help in Psalm 121.21.2, my help is there, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Would we say that God is subordinate to David? The answer is not at all. God is coming in to rescue David. The word is there. So when God says, I'm going to make a helper, I'm going to rescue this person. There is no, it's still equal. We've translated this word to mean that there's subordinate, that there's levels, that there's hierarchy. It's not how it begins. Genesis 1 and 2, where our story begins, is equality between the genders, equality between the sexes. This is where it starts. Turn the page. Genesis chapter 3. Things go downhill pretty quickly, you could say. They lived in a garden. If you're not familiar with the story, there was harmony. Animals supposedly talked, at least in my version, the animals were having conversations. It was great, Mr. Red, Dr. Doolittle, however you want to imagine it. It was happening. And then sin entered the world. The serpent comes and tempts, and it tempts Eve first. And Eve brings the, the fruit, probably something gross, and says to, to Adam, I say it's gross because I don't really want to eat it, so it's probably like a lemon. Anyway, but they bring this, this fruit, and Adam eats it. Adam and Eve sin, and instantly the first thing that happens is their perfect intimacy is broken. They used to walk around the garden naked and unashamed. My two-year-old does this in the backyard. He wants to be naked all the time. And we have kind of a private backyard, and he says, Daddy, naked. And he's not asking me. He wants to be. And so he'll, we take the diaper off, and he runs around like a crazy person. He loves it. There's no shame in him. This is what it was before the fall. There's no shame in body image. He hasn't been hurt like that yet. He doesn't know. He's just being him. He doesn't have this cumbersome diaper on him anymore. And he can run around and be naked and unashamed. This is the freedom and the intimacy and the wholeness that was experienced in the garden. Genesis 3 happens. That is broken. And the first thing that they do is hide. The second thing that they do is blame. Adam says to God after God finds them, and Adam says, uh, it's my wife's fault. My, the, the woman you, you gave me. So really, it's, it's, it's your fault. And Eve says, it's the serpent's fault, not my fault. It's, it's that serpent. The first thing that was affected, or the first couple things that were affected, was our shame and our blame game stepped in. No one had to teach us how to do that. And what God does in response to this is that he levels judgments and curses. We often hear these things as bad things, but really when you look at them, the world is broken because they sinned. God is trying to mend the brokenness. So the first thing he does is he puts some statements in there of judgments, but really they're acts of mercy. He takes the brokenness and begins to redeem the brokenness so that through the brokenness, male and female would return back to him. Through the brokenness that God uses. Many people will read this and say God created the brokenness. The brokenness was there. God put order to the brokenness because throughout creation of time, God is always bringing order to chaos in order that we may find him. 
So he says death has entered into the world. Humanity on its own will always bend towards self-destruction. That's why Adam needed a, a savior. God knows this, that we're always uh, seeking to, uh, on our own devices, we're always seeking destruction. And so he uses this difficulty to bring us back. And if we're honest, when we look at the world around us, it's not when we're rich and prosperous where we go looking for God. When we're rich and we're prosperous, we always think we can have this thing nailed. And so we don't need God. But it's when we're broken. It's when we need healing. It's when we're at the end of our rope where we find ourselves drawn back to the one we need most. Dallas Willard, uh, one of my favorite authors, says God's address is at the end of your rope avenue. And so when we're at the end of ourselves, this is where we find our need for God. Even though we needed God as much as we did at the top of the world as we do in the bottom of the world. But the way we're wired is we don't seek God until we need to. So the brokenness, death enters the world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are blaming each other. God comes in and says, I'm going to use this to bring you back. And he says, you want to find... So he says to the man, uh, so in an act of mercy, the judgment, he says, your work will consume you. You will try and find everything you need to make yourself complete in your work. You'll want to find significance in it. But in your work, you will always be unfulfilled which is true. You don't want to stereotype things this morning. This is just a general observation. Guys, we like to find worth and value and respect from what we do with our hands. It's just, it's a thing about us. Most of us anyways. This is what we look for when we find worth. We want power, we want respect. Then he goes to the woman. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And every mother went, yes. This is true. With painful labor, this is before epidural, with painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Now, this is the fascinating part because up until this part in Genesis, you have equality. You have the, the, the sexes, they're equal. Now there's a little bit of difference here. And then he says in verse 16, to the woman, he said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This word desire here gets mistranslated. It is not a sexual desire. It's used in the next chapter over. It's a word that, that, that has nothing to do with the sexual desire. It means to master or control. Your, does you will want to master or control your husband. Instead of equality in marriage, instead of equality between man and woman, they now... We have a power struggle. One side is looking for respect. The other side is looking for control. And it plays out in a million different ways even today. We have power struggles in our world. They power over. We have men abusing power. We have women wanting to control power. And we have this, and I'm not making any political statements. It's just a simple observation of the world we find ourselves in. There is discord between the relationships between man and woman. And it plays out in a million different ways. But men will try and use their power to control, and women will try and seek to master and control and fix the man as they seek to subjugate and dominate women. It describes what we have in our world today. There is a misuse of power on every single side. 
to say that male and female relationships are, are marked by our need for power and control is an obvious statement. In our relationships, it doesn't just end with male-female. In our relationships, some of our relationships are used to find power and control over people. We have a desire to dominate. Every single one of us has the desire to dominate. And it's, it's played out in all of our relationships. So, this is the backstory to what Paul is going to say in Ephesians chapter 5. We, in our relationships, between our friends, between our spouses, live in brokenness. We want to one-up each other all the time. So several thousand years later, in a few thousand pages, if you would flip your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians Christ followers. He started by saying, this is your new identity in Christ. Then he says, there's no more divisions between you all. The dividing wall has been taken down. And then he says, this love that Christ has given you, I want you to be rooted and established in that love. Then he says, stop acting like the people you once were. That's not who you are. Get over yourselves. Stop being arrogant. Stop sinning. Stop living like the Gentiles were. And he's going through now how we should live our lives. So in Ephesians, Paul is writing to this very specific church that is in Ephesus. In Roman law, they codified, which is a fun word that I learned how to say, they codified the brokenness that we see in Genesis 3 of the hierarchy and our need for power, and they said, you know what? That's normal. Let's make that law. And so they made it so that the male in all relationships in society had extreme power. They took the brokenness and said, this must be right, rather than going back to the intention of equality, harmony, and saying that's the goal, they said the brokenness is where we need to be. So they developed a system of law that said the husband, the father, the male, was an absolute head of the household. He had absolute power over life and death. He had absolute power over the family. He had absolute power over everything. At any time, the male could order the death or disown any of his sons or daughters. If an infant was born that the man didn't like for some odd reason, all he had to do was turn his back, and in Ephesus they know where this hill is, and the hill would, they would take the baby to be exposed, and then the baby would ultimately die because the male had that power. He had, all he had to do was turn his back. The status of women in the first century was pretty low. They were only owed, as a wife, they were only owed the duty of the, fa- of the man to bring children and a roof over their head. No date night, no bachelor nights, no love, no affection, no protection, no relationship. It was all, uh, uh, all you get from your husband is a roof, and you might get some kids if you're lucky. That's it. So you have the curse in Genesis 3, which is now made law in Ephesians 5 in the Roman sense. And then to add to this, in Ephesus, there was this worship of Artemis, that, that Artemis was the god of that day that would give you. Artemis was curiously the goddess of fertility and the goddess of uh, virginity, right? Yeah. She was the goddess of fertility and the goddess of virginity, which is kind of weird if you put them together. Don't understand how that works. Ask them. But they, every year... 
they would have uh, this festival called Artemisia, uh, where they would have a party for Artemis and worship. It's sometime between our March and May in that time. And they, for a month, they would have an Artemis party, which this is how you celebrate an Artemis party. Artemis party. The male in the, in the culture, just the men, would have intercourse with as many temple prostitutes as possible for a month. Then, after it was over, they would be done. People would flock from around the world. You can see why this would be popular amongst men. People would flock from around the world to Ephesus, which normally was about 250,000 people. A million people would come in for Artemisia. And this is where they would worship Artemis. They would worship her, and, and the, the thing was, if you were uninhibited in the way you worshipped Artemis, Artemis would be uninhibited in the way she blessed you. And she would bless every, soul, every part of life. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul says the line, In him we live and have our breath. That was a line that they said about Artemis when they said, In Artemis we live and have breath. Paul is going right against their God and saying, No, 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 not Artemis. In Christ we have all of this. And so this is how they worshipped. In the context that Paul writes in, men have absolute power over everything. So when we come to Ephesians 5, we come to this statement. It's not a random statement that Paul makes. He's talking to a very specific uh, understanding of the roles between men and women and the roles between the household and the roles that people have in our society. So... Flip over to Ephesians 5 if you're not already there. If you remember Paul's statement that we read earlier, the world is disunified, the world is fractured. Christ has come to forgive us and bring everything under his lordship. Paul has taken this idea of Jesus being Lord from this cosmic idea of over everything, and now he's focusing on how uh, Jesus' relationship and Jesus' lordship comes into the way that we relate to each other. In this context, submission has been practiced in a way of, de- of designating power. But Paul is trying to build a more complete picture of what submission means as he's saying that Christ is building this new humanity. So in this passage, uh, this is what the word submission is better defined this way. And we'll read it. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Bryn read this a while ago. I've been talking for a minute. We might have forgotten It says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul gives five commands here. And they all have to do with how we relate to each other. First, he says, be wise. Be wise in your relationships. Don't be foolish. Be wise. Then he says, don't be drunk. Then he says, speak truth to one another. Don't lie to each other. This is how we're going to get along. Be wise. Don't be a drunk, because when we're drunk, we say stupid things, and we do stupid things. And then, speak truth. And then he says, worship. Give thanks. And then the last one, and it goes in vain with everything that has been said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
our English Bibles mess this up greatly. They, they mess this up, and, and then some bad teaching has come from it. It is as though they make it seem, at least in my Bible, that when you read it, it goes, uh, there's the imitators of God passage, and then, there's, then there seems to be a break, and then now it says wives and husbands, and then it starts with the word submit. Our English Bibles has messed this up. What Paul is saying here is all one sentence from verse 15 to the end of verse 24, all one long run-on Greek sentence. And he's saying this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Meaning this is what it looks like to have an ongoing, ever-developing relationship with Christ empowered by His Spirit. All of these actions come from that relationship. All relationship with the Spirit. All of our relationships are marked with us being filled, controlled by His Spirit. So we are wise because of the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit, then we are sober. We're worshiping. And because we have reverence and are filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we hear this word submit, we have a bad definition of it because of the cultural stuff with the we just covered, we think it means be a doormat. We think it means not having an opinion. We think it means just doing whatever the other person says. But that's not what it says here. Submitting to one another means to place our interest under the interest of someone else because of Christ. Because we are wise. Because we, And it's not just men and women. It's not just women submitting. Paul is talking to everybody at this moment. He's saying, everybody submit to one another. Now, we see this in many ways throughout our world today. We submit to a bunch of things. The first thing we submit to, how many of you drove here today? How many of you submitted to the traffic laws on your way over? Three of four of you, maybe. <laughs> we submit to traffic laws. Why? Because in traffic laws, it is good for us not to go 65 down a residential. Can we agree? How many of you have been pulled over? That's it? <laughs> How many of you have said, but I don't like this law that you pulled me over for? Okay. <laughs> How many of you have been caught by a red light camera? Red-handed. What did you do? Did you try and Photoshop your face out of it and say, that's not me? Did you try and wiggle? We all try and wiggle out. Uh, some people impose the power of tears, and it works sometimes. I can't get away with it. If I start crying, the cop's going to arrest me because I'm high or something. But <laughs> we have traffic laws in our, in our society, and we have all agreed that these things are good laws to submit to. Why? Because it, most of the time... Uh, we submit to these laws and we place ourselves under the authority of the state patrol to say, this is what we agree to because it is good for the rest of the society that we don't go 80 down Jones. Can we agree on that? Don't go 80 down Jones, please. The neighbors, we're, we want to be good to them. It facilitates the common good that we have these kind of laws. And we've agreed to place our individual interests Maybe sometimes it's our lateness under these laws for the common good. I desire 
to go faster. I wish I can write my own laws. The person who goes 35 in the supposed fast lane needs to move over. I wish I can say I can go as fast as I want and I don't have to have two or three more people in my lane in order to be there. This lane is Brett's. I wish I can do that. I wish I could drive like that. All of you can stay out of my lane unless you ask for permission. So when Paul is saying, listen, this is how we're going to live with each other. We're going to submit to one another out of reverence and respect for Christ. Because we've been changed, because this is our new identity, because there's no more divisions between male, female, Jew, and Gentile, because we're rooted and established in his love, because we live in a different way, this next way is to say we submit one to another. This is what it meant. Because this isn't about men or women submitting to men. This is about everyone in the church. Paul is saying here, this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This isn't a man and woman issue. This isn't a husband and wives issue. This is a disciple of Christ issue. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2. If you want to flip back there, uh, Philippians 2, chapter 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility and value of others above yourself, not looking to your own self-interest, but each of you to the interests of others. This is what Paul is getting at. As redeemed people, we submit to one another instead of being self-absorbed. Our world, in our world, it's very easy to be self-absorbed, but Paul is saying we go opposite to the world and we look for the care and, and the protection of others. This is what he means by submit. We yank this out of context every single day, and some bad teaching has come from it. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, our translations mess this section up because right after verse 21 comes verse 22. And and what says, in some Bibles, it'll say, wives, submit to your husbands. This is where we've screwed this up again in translation because in the Greek, that word submit that's in there in verse 22. I know this is getting very nerdy, but it's important. The word submit in verse 22, when you look in the language, isn't there. It says, people submit to one another. And then the word submit, the word hypotasso, is borrowed from verse 21. We're talking about submission. We're talking about people submitting. And so submit to one another. Here's how it should say, wives to husbands. Paul is not giving a command here. He's giving an example. This is how we submit to one another. Wives, husbands. Remember the culture of the day. How would have this, how would this command or this suggestion been taken? Yeah, of course. That's what we do, right? Because that's how the culture is. This is they would have thought, yeah, this is how it's how it's supposed to be. But that's not what Paul is saying. And because of this, here's the bad teaching that has come in. Because we've separated these verbs and we've made this a command, we use this verse to tell people who are in horrible, abusive relationships to stay in the relationship. We say, you're being abused, you must submit, which is crap. And if you're offended by the word crap, I could have used a lot worse. That is not what Paul is saying here. 
He's not saying that you have to submit to your abusive husband because this is what the Bible says to you. If you're being hurt, abused, verbally, emotionally, physically, it is good for you to get out of that situation. If you need help getting out, let me know. We can help you. This verse has been twisted to say that you have to stay in these relationships. It's been used as an excuse. It's been said, don't separate from this person. Instead, submit. This is what God's will is for you, which it isn't. God's will is not for you to be abused any more, any longer than, you, than right now. Don't use, don't listen to this when it says, this is how it says you should live. This command for wives to submit wasn't very revolutionary. It was taken as, yeah, of course it was back in Paul's day. What came next was the most revolutionary part. Notice if you flip through the rest of Ephesians, you have instructions of wives and husbands. Then it says children and parents, and then, uh, which really isn't just parents here. He's talking about fathers. And then it says masters to slaves. In Roman culture, husbands, parents, the father was considered the parent. The master was always the male. He's talking to the same guys. He's talking to men. He's saying, look, this is how you represent Christ in the relationships that is closer to the closest to you. This is what's so revolutionary about this passage. Not wives submitting, but husbands loving. It says in verse 20, 22, wives submit. Blah, 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 blah. Verse 25, husbands love. Remember, a woman in the first century was not owed love was not owed anything more than a roof and maybe some kids. But Paul is saying, love your wife. Love this person. So in a matter of one big, long, run-on sentence that we have chopped up into a bunch of sentences that have ruined a lot of people's lives, Paul is saying simply here, uh, thousands of years of household codes, Paul is saying, men, husbands, love the people that are around you. This is why it's so countercultural, because love wasn't even part of it. Husbands, love your wives in verse 25. And he could have stopped right there, but then he goes a little bit further. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let me get this right. Uh, we, until we die for another person, until we die, there's always room to grow in how we treat people around us. The example is Jesus giving himself up for his church. That's the type of love that Paul is talking about here. This is how we treat one another. He continues, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Two things that Paul is referencing here. The first one, washed, blameless. After the whole Artemisia festival, after that whole thing, they would take their statue of Artemis and they would go down to the harbor and they would wash her, making her holy and blameless. Paul is referencing that here. Then two, he's referencing the Hellenistic culture that they lived in. The human body was absolutely worshipped. And so he says, 
Why would you hate your own body? Because the body was elevated. The Olympic Games were a worship service to the human body. That's why they were first ran and they were all naked in all of their games because they're glorifying the body. Their statues, all naked because they are glorifying the body. In Hellenistic culture, a body was the best you can do and so let's elevate it as much. So what Paul is saying, as much as you take care or as much as they take care of Artemis, and as much as you all take care of your bodies, I imagine they were all vegetarian or paleo or whatever, as much as you take care of your own body, this is how you are supposed to take care of the relationships around you. And husbands, this is how you take care of people in your household. It's about making the church spotless, to seek the best for your wives, to seek the best for the people who are around you. It's not limited to husbands and wives. It's all of the relationships. And then Paul sneaks this quote in from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and the mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, Paul's saying, you guys thought I was talking about your, your relationships, your marriages? No, 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 no. I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm talking about your relationships, And he says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and wives must respect your husbands. Do you understand what Paul is giving us in this instruction is completely antithetical and a redemption to the curse that was given in Genesis 3? If Genesis 3 entered in hierarchy between man and woman, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Christ is redeeming even that hierarchy and he's bringing the world back to him, beginning our relationships. You all submit to one another. No more of this. This person is better to this person. Instead of controlling, mastering, fixing, respect each other, submit. Instead of trying to dominate and rule, love and serve. We've greatly misunderstood these verses. We've greatly misapplied them. Instead of giving us a household code, Paul has given us a beautiful snapshot of how Christ reverses the curse of Genesis 3. Instead of our normal grasping for power and control on both sides, both sides are instead to say love and serve and respect. Now, if your marriages are like any other marriages is, Is that the right word? Here's how it goes. All love and respect as soon as they love and respect me. Right? It's not just marriages. Friendships. All apologize if they apologize. We have to mutually apologize. I'll give them what they want, but they have to give me what they want. You see how this is kind of circling the drain and not really getting at what Paul is saying. You go, he's not saying, you apologize first, you seek forgiveness first, you go first, and then I'll go second. That's not what he's saying here. And biblically, if you find yourselves in one of those relationships, you're doing it wrong. It's not how submission works. It's not how our relationships work. We don't apologize because we don't like to apologize because we have pride because we're stuck in a Genesis 3 world. We don't like to respect because we want respect first. Apologizing and submitting and respecting means that you have lost the argument, right? And we don't like to lose. No one likes to lose. But that's, this is what Paul is saying. Here's how it works out with, in, in our relationships. And she's downstairs listening. 
Um, so, sorry, sweetie. Um, I'll say something which is, I think is right, and Carrie will say, no, it's wrong, and then we'll, we'll bicker a little bit. And then, here's where I become a total jerk. Uh, shocking. Uh, she'll say, Brad, you were right. And I'll go, yes. What'd you say? I make her say it three or four more times. You were right. I know. Say it again. You were right. I know. Say it again. I'm rubbing it in, right? Because I love to be right. Vindication. That's how we rule our relationships. We like to be the one in charge. We like to be the one that's right. Not just in marriages, in all relationships. We like to be the one with the power. But here's what Paul is saying. Here's what God does with a passage like this. And he reminds us of the simple truth that our relationships don't have to do with what we receive in either respect or power, but they have to do with how much we give. And it's so simplistic. But imagine if we really lived this way. Here's how I'm learning it. The whole I'm right vindication. Uh, But I come home from work, and I've been sitting on my butt, usually in one classroom all day, uh, in meetings. And I come home, and I'm just done with everything. I want to come home, and I want to turn on the angel game and watch them continue to lose. And then I uh, I want to catch up on maybe some news. And then I'd like to go in my backyard and practice my chipping. And, and, and this is what I want to do. And then I'll justify it and say, uh, I need this time because I've been working all day, Carrie. And then she looks at me and she looks at our wonderfully rambunctious son and says, what have I been doing? And I go, you're absolutely right. When I come home and find that my posture and my entitlement affects my relationship with the one I live closest to, I start thinking I'm owed something. And Paul says, in this relationship, it goes in the reverse direction. This reverse direction begins with us giving back because we're empowered by God's Spirit. This whole submission thing is framed by the Spirit being with us. We can't do this on our own. It's not natural for us to do this. We have to give up our entitlement in every way, which is completely backwards. We want respect. We want intimacy. We want to do what we want to do in Genesis 3. And Paul says, okay, but the respect and the intimacy that you want only comes when you put your needs aside and begin to serve the needs of the other. Jesus doesn't redeem our spiritual lives, only our spiritual lives, in our sin but he redeems the physical places in which we live. This is what he's saying in Ephesians 5. It affects your relationships. This isn't just marriages. And he continues, it's about parenting. It's about work relationships. It's about every relationship you come across. Because it's not like marriage automatically makes you a better person. In fact, what I found is when I got married, I realized how selfish and what a jerk I was because I wanted things my way. Marriage doesn't fix you. It exposes you and says, this is what you have to work with. And this has endless ramifications for every single relationship that we have. So what if we approached our relationships with, instead of what can I get, what if we approached our relationships with, what can I give here? 
How do I elevate this person above mine? This is how Paul is saying, this is the, the curse reversed. This is how we live with one another. God is in the process of bringing all things under the headship of Christ. And the salvation that we get doesn't just save and forgive our sins. It's about redeeming every single relationship that we have. And it starts with the people closest to us. Discipleship begins with how we treat each other. In 1 Peter, Peter talks about relationships. He uses the same illustration of the household, of marriages. And he says, if you want to know what's hindering your prayer, you're acting like a jerk. Your relationships with other people, that's what's hindering your prayers. And 2,000 years later, we read this passage and we still want to make it about submitting and wives submitting. And for 2,000 years, we've ruined it. It's about each other submitting to each other. This revolution of Jesus doesn't just happen with us saying, okay, I'm going to submit. No, 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 no. Go back to the beginning of verse 15. In order for this to happen, there has to be a fullness of the Spirit. There has to be a surrender of your will. There has to be, okay, God, what are you doing here? Allowing the Spirit to move in and identify in those places of pride, of arrogance, of entitlement, saying, why do I want to control people? Why do I feel like people need to submit to me at all times? What's going on? And being full of the Spirit means that you are surrendering when the Spirit says, it's because of this. And you work on that. And you say, I'm going to address that issue so that I can be in a better relationship with the people around us. You ever wonder what it would look like if Adam and Eve didn't sin? It would look like a church submitting to one another, looking out for the best in one another. Paul says it's because this is the same attitude that Christ had. He had all the rights and privileges that he could have, and he said, you know what? I'm putting this aside, and I'm going to become like one of them in order that I can save them. Putting yourself and your self-interest aside is what it could look like if Adam and Eve never had sinned. Our relationships is where it begins. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you give us interesting passages like this. And Lord, we are sorry, or I am sorry, in the places and times where this has gone misapplied, where it's gone the wrong way, where it's been used to do power and control instead of giving each other up, instead of giving up my own ways and my own entitlement. Lord, we repent. I repent of that. Lord, we ask you, through your spirit, to give us the strength to submit to one another out of reverence for what you're doing in this world. You're reversing the curse, and it begins in our relationships with the person right across from us, the person in our personal space. Help us to submit to your spirit and to each other. In your name we pray. As a form of response, it's fitting that this comes at the beginning of the month where we normally do communion. Communion is a type of community where we together remember Christ, what he did for us, what his sacrifice for us so that we could be in relationship with him so that our relationships can be redeemed.
And so today, when we take communion, here's my challenge to you. I want you to pray for the person to your right and left. Male, female, pray for them. Pray that they would find uh, God's spirit controlling their lives. That they would be able to submit to the spirit. Pray for them. If, If it's a member of the opposite sex, pray for them. In whatever way that you feel uh, the Lord leading you to pray, pray for them. Do it internally. And, and if you don't know what to say, simply say, Lord, I just, whatever you're doing in this person, continue to do it. We'll learn next week that the way that we fight these battles of entitlement and empowerment is through prayer. It's our first line of defense, it's our first line of offense. So my, my prodding to you is before we take communion, come pray or pray for the person around you. And then when you take communion, remember it's a picture of what Christ did for us, that through his body breaking, through his blood shedding, we can have relationship with him. If you're not comfortable taking communion, we're not going to judge you. Stay where you are. Uh, if you'd like to know more about this picture of what Jesus has done for us, I would love to tell you about it. So today, I'd like to invite the communion service forward. Uh, If you need gluten-free for any reason, I'll have that and I'll have a special cup designated just for you. Uh, So I'm going to pray again, pass out communion. We ask that you go in orderly fashion, probably go to the back and around and back this way. Uh, I feel like a traffic controller. Uh, And then when you're ready, come. Father, we thank you uh, that we get to pray for each other, that we get to encourage each other on. Uh, that we speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, encouraging us to live according to your spirit. Father, we thank you uh, for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for the new life that you have brought, that we can live through.